Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. The police role of the military falls on to the National Guard. And they, but yeah, 100%, they should be activated down there. And especially if they actually let this Title 42 and you're, you start seeing 15,000 a day coming across, it's most people don't even know that. I saw a poll that they said that most people think it's less than a thousand a day. And, you know, it's because the media just doesn't even cover it. They're just hiding the entire story. And to my point, let's, let's wrap up with this. As far as the immigration goes, there was a guy. So a good friend of mine, Michael Yawn was the guy that set up that whole Panama trip. And he met a guy when he was down in Panama. I think the time after I was down there, he met a guy I think he said he was from Honduras or something like that. That guy actually ended up in New York and he had stayed in email contact with Michael and Michael said he got an email from him. He said, I'm being evicted. So he had gone to New York to stay because there was a friend of his that was there, but there were two guys in a really small apartment, like a studio apartment. And his landlord said, you can't have this many people in here. And so that breaks your lease. So your guest has to go. Well, that means this guy had nowhere to go. So he is literally going to be homeless. And I think this is going to start happening. Well, uh, that's what falls on the city. You're going to start seeing of all these immigrants coming across, you know, the federal government, these people are like, oh yeah, we'll take care of you. And I love the videos of the guys as these buses are pulling up, they're standing there in front of the bus and they're shaking everybody's hand as they're coming across. And as they're coming out of the out of the bus and headed over to the reception center, they get them a little food and some clothing or whatever, and then they send them on their way somewhere. Well, that's all fantastic, but it's all a show. And eventually, our country cannot absorb this many people. And this whole dream of, you know, all these welfare benefits and housing and all of this stuff that these immigrants believe is waiting for them. And when we talk to a lot of these immigrants down in Panama, they actually thought all they have to do is get to America and they're going to be taken care of the rest of their lives. I mean, literally, that's their mindset. They pretty much are. I mean, to an extent. I remember my grandparents talking about it in those days, in pre-World War II days, in Europe and parts of Europe, they literally thought the streets were lined with gold here. That's what they were told, and they migrated here. But again, like you said before about assimilation, they migrated here with the intention of laying down roots and and working and being that American dream. My maternal grandfather, he came here, ironically, at 15 on vacation, and he loved it so that he stayed, went to school. I mean, he became a citizen, went to school, and he set up states. He was part of America, you know? My grandmother, funny, my grandmother was born here, and then they took her back to what was Hungary at the time. And then she came back again when she was like 11. They took her back, I think, at three or four, and then she came back again. 
He came back to the United States at 11, not speaking a word of English. But, you know, in those days, the family sponsored one another, and they helped each other, and they pushed each other in the right direction. But we weren't getting... I mean, I hear the stories of Ellis Island and what it was, the influx then, you know, the ships coming daily with immigrants. But again, they were processed through Ellis Island, and there was some kind of a track kept. But now these are just buses. I mean, you heard the stories that they were sent to New York with pieces of paper to fictitious addresses. They were showing up at different addresses, and they had a piece of paper. And it said, go to this address for, for aid. And it was a bogus address, or it was just a building. And they were wandering the street. I don't know what's going to happen now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. All I know is this. The difference is, back when you were talking about with when your grandmother came, is when people came to the country back then, their entire purpose and their, their entire focus was to become productive yeah. as quickly as possible so that they could support yeah, themselves because they knew right, a lot of limited... There was a limited amount of resources that they had access to before they were just on their own. Nowadays, that mindset isn't there. And the numbers that there are coming across are so big that you can't assimilate them fast enough. Most of them don't speak English. It's like, what are they going to do to become productive? And if they don't become productive, then what do you do with them? Well, you can't let them just be on the street and starve to death. So they're basically going to go into the welfare system and that welfare system's already overwhelmed. And so the bottom line is a lot of these people, now don't get me wrong. If I lived in Venezuela, if I lived in Venezuela and, you know, life sucked so bad that I was willing to make that trip, I would absolutely make it. If I knew that America was open and I lived in a country that was super poor and I was in a horrible position and there wasn't any prospects there, would I make that trip? 100%. So I don't blame the people for coming. What I blame are the people that have created this magnet to draw all these people here, and there's no repercussions for breaking our laws. But the bottom line is, as our system becomes completely overwhelmed, and we're close anyway, the fact that the border, they can't stop these people. They're just coming in, they're supposedly being processed and then released into the country. And at such a rate, like I said, 15,000 a day. The bottom line is these people are going to f turn to crime. You think the crime rate is bad now? Imagine all these people being starving to death. They're looking at people eating in a restaurant. You know, if they're on the streets in New York and they see somebody walking by and they have a purse and there's a really good chance that, you know, it's a nice purse and there's a really good chance that there's some money in there. What are they going to do? Well, you know, again, we don't know this, but a lot of the, uh, the immigrants that are coming in, just like in past times when immigrants came in, there was a lawless part that they brought with them. Every ethnic group had their own mafia, so to speak. You know, no matter which ethnic group it was, they all had their own organized crime. And a lot of these people were victims of their own organized crime. That's all who knew that they knew. I mean... Again, they tried to escape it by coming here, only to find in the neighborhoods in which they settled that it was flourishing alive and well. So they became victims again. They were victimized. You know, that's going to happen again because the organized crime, like MS-13, they gained a foothold here. In New York, they did, in various parts of New York, and they're brutal. They're very brutal. 
but they were yeah. brutal in their own country. You know, so you have people that are escaping now in Baltimore, and they're they're becoming victims again. So they, what do they do? Like the cartels. The cartels are just going to set up shop here. The only thing is we can't, we don't have the raw materials to produce the drugs here. I mean, the meth labs, yes, but we don't have copal plants. We don't have poppy seeds. We don't have marijuana fields here. Although the legalization of marijuana might cut down on some of it, but still, we don't have the raw materials, but we do have the facilities. So they, if they can bring the finished product across the border, they can bring the raw materials across the border. And a lot of these people will become servants of the same people they were servants of in their own country. Like you said, there's not going to be jobs for them. So where are they going to work? Well, they might not turn to street crime, but they definitely might turn to working in a plant, you know, that manufactures fentanyl, you know, or whatever. Same thing that they did in their country. That's what they know. There's no escaping it. They're here to do it. I mean, that's another problem. I don't have the answers. I really don't. I don't even know where to start. It's above my pay grade. Well, you know, if your house is flooded, the first thing you got to do is turn the water off. I wish you would. It's like in Washington, D.C., there is no desire right now to turn the water off. And it, it, they're just completely denying that there's even a problem. And it, it blows my mind. But listen, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, there was a rule that was just passed where they said you can't, the NYPD can no longer detain anybody in, and for them to determine if they have we, warrants. I touched on that earlier. Yeah, what is that about? It was a lawsuit, apparently. It was a class action lawsuit. I don't know who instigated it, but this is not new. We could never, I say we, you know, as a former member of the department, we could never stop you solely to run you through the system. No. In order to stop someone, you have to have, it starts out as reasonable suspicion. Now, again, what's reasonable suspicion? It's July. It's 95 degrees. And you're wearing, you know, a North Face parka, okay? <laughs> that might raise my suspicion level. Why is this individual wearing this huge jacket? Obviously, he must have something underneath that he wants to hide, you know? I mean, that's going to the extreme, but... That's an example of reasonable suspicion. Now, you stop this person and you question them. Why are you wearing that jacket? It's 95 degrees. Now, if they can't give an answer or they do another move that maybe they clutch the jacket together or whatever, now your suspicion level gets raised, okay? And based on your training and expertise. Again, this is all, you have to be able to articulate all of it. It might raise you to probable cause. And probable cause means based on your level of training, your expertise, the amount of arrests you've made in the past, I'm going to pat this guy down for my own safety and his safety. Again, he could be, you know, he could be emotionally unstable. You don't know this. Maybe he's going to hurt himself. Maybe he has a bomb. You know, there's a lot of things that go into this thought process. So then you might pat the mm-hmm. person down. Now you feel a gun or the outline of a gun. So now you, you go in and, you know, you make the arrest. Okay. Now the NYPD has a form called the stop question frisk form. Again, you just can't stop someone for no reason. You have to be able to articulate the reason you're stopping them. There has to be some reason. Okay. Reasonable suspicion. Again, we would never allow to just arbitrarily stop people and run a warrant check. 
It just wasn't done. It couldn't be done. So this is nothing new. The press is spinning it to make it seem like it's another, you know, anti-police rhetoric. It's really not. This is something that it's always been there. It just hasn't been titled, so to speak. Now it's got a title. It's got a name to it now. Now there's a lawsuit. Now, but it's nothing new. We were never able to just detain you based on that. You know, again, if your car is pulled over and they run a plate check on you or, you know, you hand over your driver's license, they run your license, yes, it's going to show if you have any warrant. But again, you had to do something to get pulled over. There was a traffic infraction of some sort that got you pulled over. So that's your reasonable suspicion. Now, I get your license registration insurance. Now I run you to make sure you are, in fact, a licensed driver. Now you have warrants. Okay, I arrest you based on the warrant. But the initial stop was because of a traffic violation, you know? Right. And that's always been in effect. So, again, this is something that they're just spinning. It's always been there. It's nothing new. Well, that's disappointing because sometimes, you know, they call it the news because it's actual legit news and it's not opinion. But from the sounds of what you're saying... That this whole incident, basically, or or policy. It's a non-entity. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yes, there was a lawsuit, and the judge ruled in favor of the plaintiff. Okay, obviously, the plaintiff was stopped. And the plaintiff must have felt that they were stopped for no apparent reason other than to be checked. And again, that's not the case. There had to be some sort of preliminary reason to stop them. And that's usual. That's some sort of infraction or reasonable suspicion. You can't just arbitrarily, you know, we're going to stop the first 15 people that walk past us and run them through the system. No, it doesn't work that way. It never did. It never worked that way. No, what we did do was, again, if we had a murder case or a shooting in a given, let's say it was a high-rise apartment complex, okay, to garner information, you might do warrant checks on the location to see if anyone at the location has active warrants and then they do warrant sweeps to go in and get these people that have active warrants and then debrief all these people to try to garner information on a given case. But again, that's just an investigative tool. You're not stopping the people, you're running an address and coming up with who at that address has warrants. Okay? And that's in line with an investigation, an existing investigation. So again, it's not just arbitrarily picking any address in the city. Let's run this address for no other reason than to see who has warrants there and then hitting the location. No, it's done as in the course of an investigation. So there's reasons for it. Everything has to have reasons. You have to be able to articulate the reason in court. And news tends to, they sensationalize a lot of things that they need not. And there's a lot of things they should, but they don't sensationalize. They downplay certain things. Yeah. Speaking of sensationalizing, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about that quadruple murder in Idaho. Oh, it's extremely sad. And I don't know if you you heard one of my previous podcasts, but my whole family went to University of Idaho. And yeah, yeah. I lived up in Moscow, Idaho for 10 years. And my dad got his PhD right across the state line at Washington State. So, you know, very near and dear to my heart as far as the area and even yeah i mean who knows it, well i could I'd, I'd have to give you my educated opinion on it i think they just increased the number of fbi agents that were assigned i think they upped it by about 16 or 20 fbi agents now and rightly so you know the question though is the fbi doesn't investigate this well, kind of stuff 
They need the help. First of all, this is a case that's going to be made inside. It's going to be a forensic case, okay? I have almost no doubt that's going to be a forensic case. And what do you mean by that? Well, they're going to make the case on either DNA, fingerprints, something along those lines. When you have a case like this with this type of, of activity, again, I'm not privy to the case folder. I just know what anyone else knows, you know, from, and very little has been made public. And the things that have been made public, we don't know how right it is. It's like the information hasn't been vetted, so we don't know. But what we, look, there were four individuals and they were brutally stabbed. A stabbing is a personal crime. It's very easy to shoot somebody. Very easy and relatively clean. Stabbing is up close and personal. On that note, I'm not saying that the perpetrator or perpetrators were known. I, I'm almost positive they were known to at least one of the victims in some way, shape, or form. Now, just based on this, this year, well, violence. Yeah, I mean, right? you're going in there and you're doing this much damage. There's got to be emotion behind it. You know, it's not a stranger thing. I mean, it could very well be. There's always exceptions to the rule. I mean, there's profilers up the yin-yang that are all adding their two cents to this, but they're doing it based on nothing because there is no profile because they're not really to the case folder. So they don't know how many stab wounds. Right. They don't know what parts of the body the stab wounds were. We're just assuming. But when you have some, and again, I say someone because I don't believe it's multiple perpetrators. That's my own personal opinion. I believe it's one perpetrator, at least one perpetrator in the scene. I'm not saying there couldn't have been someone in a getaway car or like that, but I think there was only one perpetrator in the scene. I think the perpetrator had been to the scene before, but yet not that many times because otherwise he or she wouldn't have known about the other two individuals that were on the ground floor that were left alive. Mm -hmm. It seems that the perpetrator wasn't aware of those two. I know the house is a very weird structure, the way it's laid out. The back of the house, the second floor, is like the ground level in the back. But in the front of the house, it's, yeah, it's on a level. It's on a really major, a really steep yeah. slope. Now, yeah. again, I don't know if there was forced entry or not. They're not saying. There's a big sliding door on the second floor. It seems that would have been my chosen place to enter. One thing for sure is it's a very bloody scene. That we know. You, you see pictures of blood leaking out. So it pooled at some place and it literally leaked. That's an incredibly bloody scene. The perpetrator had to be covered in blood when they left that scene. And I'm, again, I don't know this. There had to be a blood trail someplace, probably in the rear, you know, near that sliding door out into the woods. That's where the woods were. I'm sure there was a blood trail. I don't think they left the scene on foot. I mean, to a point, and then they got into a vehicle of some sort. That's my opinion. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.